I mean, how much information do we really have that it's important to us that it remain, you know, secure against attacks from quantum computers? Probably a lot of pictures of our cats or whatever, like it's okay if somebody gets access to them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it is uh, you know, for, for certain kinds of information, I guess we really do want it to be secure a long time into the future. Welcome back to Relatively Certain, a science podcast straight from researchers at the University of Maryland. I'm Dina Genkina, and today we're here with a tale of a bachelor-style reality competition that just wrapped up at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST for short, the government agency responsible for standardizing all things like the kilogram, the second, and the composition of baking chocolate. In this game, the contestants are not people, but algorithms each designed to protect our data from a possible threat of quantum computers. We'll dive into what that threat is and the various ways the contenders would tackle it. And we'll see how NIST, aided by the entire cryptographic research community, has faced some tough decisions on who to marry, um, standardize. And we'll reveal their final decision, fresh off the presses. Here to lay out the rules of the game is the head of NIST selection committee. Yes, sure. Uh, My name's Lily Chen. I'm a mathematician and a cryptographer. I lead the crypto technology group at NIST. Before we get into quantum-proof cryptography, let's back up a step to regular old cryptography. It's the science of secret messages. Say you want to send a message to your friend Bob that reads, not everyone is here for the right reasons but you don't want anybody else to be able to read it. You could use Pig Latin, shifting consonants to the ends of words and adding an A to the whole mess. So it might sound something like, Otne, anyone of A, is a erehe, orfe, ethne, igthre, isensre. But that won't work very well if you and Bob and those who might read the message are past the age of seven. You'd use another encryption scheme, basically a fancier version of Pig Latin that's specific to you and Bob. These days, most secret messages are sent across the internet. This means that the messages are digital and not everyone is here for the right reasons, would be turned into a sequence of ones and zeros flying through the tubes of the internet. In this digital form, there's a whole suite of mathematics available to encrypt and decrypt secret messages. Unlike Pig Latin, which always scrambles messages using the same recipe, cryptographic protocols in real life scramble each message slightly differently. This requires a unique key that can be used to lock up that specific message. The key is not something you can throw in your pocket. It's usually a large number that would be hard to simply guess. So secure communication goes something like this. Say I want to send my friend Bob a message. I would use a unique key to encrypt it into a scrambled mess. Next, I'd send the encrypted message over, and Bob would use a copy of the same key to unlock an unscrambled secret message. To everyone else, the message looks like an alphabet soup of ones and zeros. This is called symmetric key cryptography because Bob and I use the same key to do our scrambling and unscrambling. But there's a problem. How could Bob and I both get a copy of the same key in the first place? Wouldn't we need to have secretly sent that key to each other first as another encrypted message? There's a chicken and egg kind of thing playing out here. It seems like a never-ending loop of making keys to secure the keys. That's where public key cryptography enters the picture. In these protocols, the key or number 
needed to lock up the message is public. Anyone can copy it and use it. But it's different from the key needed to unlock the message, which is kept private. So public key cryptography means you use a public key to encrypt. The receiver uses the private key to decrypt. So the public key is public. Everyone can send the message to a given receiver, but only the receiver can decrypt the message. Unlike symmetric key cryptography, with public key cryptography, anyone can lock up the message, but only the targeted recipient can unlock it and read it. Often this is used initially to bootstrap a simpler symmetric protocol. The whole thing can also work in reverse to create a kind of digital signature. You can use your private key to sign something, a file, a document, a cat meme, and prove that you created it. Then anyone can verify that you are the creator by using the corresponding public key. Only the owner can generate the digital signature. The signature is verified by public key. That means anyone can verify the signature. The NIST competition has separate categories for these two use cases, encryption and digital signatures, and they will standardize at least one of each. These public key protocols that use different keys for locking and unlocking secret messages are a bit tricky. They rely on math problems that are difficult to solve, which means it's hard to figure out the private key if you only know the public key. The algorithm that is used in almost all secure transactions today is called RSA, named after its three inventors, Ron Rivest, Addy Shamir, and Leonard Edelman. It relies on a specific hard math problem called factoring, which is all about breaking numbers apart into their prime factors, whole numbers that can't be broken down any further. For example, 15 can be expressed as 3 times 5, two prime factors. But what about 5,101,543? It's hard to guess that it's a product of prime factors 6,793 and 751. Check me on that. But if I told you 751 is one of the factors, you could easily divide and get the other one. Prime numbers used in RSA cryptography get much larger still, over a thousand digits instead of three or four. And these are hard even for a supercomputer to factor. Unfortunately, even though it's hard to crack the prime factoring problem for these huge numbers with classical computers, the ones we use every day, it turns out to be a breeze for quantum computers. I mean, people have thought about this for a long time, and there's no fast classical algorithm for factoring that's known. Uh, you know, but with a quantum computer, you could efficiently factor numbers. Um, so that, that would allow you to, to break this crypto system. So yeah, I mean, this was sort of like devastating for cryptography. That's Andrew Childs, a quantum algorithms expert and the voice you heard at the top of the episode. Yeah, so I'm Andrew Childs. I'm in the computer science department at the University of Maryland, and I'm one of the co-directors of the Joint Center for Quantum Information and Computer Science. Since we spoke, Childs also became the director of another quantum center on campus, the NSF Quantum Leap Challenge Institute for Robust Quantum Simulation. In a quantum computer, the information is stored and processed inside quantum matter. It's totally different hardware than what you would see in your laptop or your phone. Quantum computers were first proposed as a way to simulate the full complexity of the quantum world, 
since it was clear that classical computers were not up to the task and may never be. The amazing thing is that the sort of particular computational power that you get from quantum computers is actually really useful for problems that have nothing to do with quantum mechanics, like in particular factoring. Back in 1994, a guy named Peter Shore, a mathematician, figured out that a quantum computer could find prime factors of large numbers much faster than a classical one. So, if an evil thief managed to rig up a quantum computer in their dark lair, they could plausibly decode our online bank transactions and steal our money, identities, and, most importantly, cat pictures. But before you start to panic, no one in the world has yet been able to build a quantum computer anywhere close to the size you would need to rob anyone, and not for lack of trying. Uh, I think, you know, building quantum computers is really hard. People are working really hard on it, I mean, clearly, and there's been a lot of recent excitement because there's been progress. But at the same time, quantum computers have to be, like, pretty robust and pretty large and much, much better than they are now before you can actually solve cryptographically interesting problems. And so you're going to need a very large system to be able to, you know, let's say, solve the smallest instances of factoring that we can't solve classically. And that's, I mean, that's just way beyond what we're, what we're able to do now. Even though there's no cause for alarm right now, it's not impossible that large enough quantum computers will start to come online in the next decade or two. And the National Institute of Standards and Technology is looking out for us. It's not a good idea to wait until you have the quantum computer that is able to break the cryptography before you figure out how to fix it. Luckily, quantum computers are not just better than classical ones in every way. On the contrary, aside from modeling the quantum world, we only know a handful of hard problems that quantum computers would be good at compared to regular computers. So, to stay ahead of the quantum curve, NIST staged their untelevised reality show competition to find an algorithm that can withstand a quantum attack. Back in 2016, Chen's team first put out a call for submissions for a quantum-proof encryption algorithm. Contestants from all over the world answered the call. We received 82 submissions from uh, six continents and 25 countries. Each contender is an algorithm put forth by a team of academics and industry experts. They have names akin to fighter pilot call signs like Falcon, Rainbow, Classic McLeese, and Crystal Skyber. The prize that's in store for the Bachelor winner is standardization by NIST. Standardization means NIST will put together a precise prescription for how to use this algorithm when sending and receiving secret messages or digitally signing them. Having such a prescription is more important than it sounds. NIST's previous competitions of this type, the Advanced Encryption Standards and Hash Function competitions, have set standards that are still in wide use today. So right now, NIST crypto standard has been implemented in every, almost every digital device. But Chen still remains cautious about the competitive aspect of this reality non-TV show. So we kind of reluctant to call it a competition. This is a community effort. Uh, so the winner, uh, everybody will be a winner <laughs> eventually. <laughs> That's a very politically correct answer. <laughs> Maybe the winners get bragging rights. Oh, of course. Since first gathering contestants, Chen and her team have gone through two rounds of elimination, whittling the pool to 26 candidates after the first round and to just seven finalists and eight alternates after the second round. 
The algorithms that made it to the final round boil down to different flavors of a few hard problems. The most popular one, at the root of five of the seven finalists and two out of the eight alternate algorithms, is what's known as the lattice problem. The basic idea goes something like this. Imagine you have a repeating grid of lampposts. Not a square grid like a well-planned city, but some kind of parallelogram pattern, repeating left and right, up and down, forward and back, into infinity. This is already difficult to picture, to put it mildly, but let's agree that the grid also extends not just in two or three earthly dimensions, but hundreds or even thousands of imagined directions. In that huge space, it's actually hard to figure out what the shortest distance between two lampposts is and which direction to go to reach the closest one. The public key, available to everyone and used to lock up a secret message, would include information about the shape of the many-dimensional parallelogram. The private key, kept secret and used to unlock the message, would include the shortest distance and direction between two lampposts. Most importantly here, Solving this kind of geometry and distance problem seems to be hard for quantum computers as well. The quantum algorithm researchers have thrown their best tools at the lattice problem and found that they don't help. That's a pretty good indication that it's secure against attack by a quantum computer, but the question remains whether it's the best choice, practically speaking. Other contestants in the finals round were based on different hard problems, all of which are similarly believed to be quantum proof. These problems also have wild names multivariate polynomials, elliptic curve isogenies, code-based cryptography, and hash functions. Each of the hard problems and their specific implementations have advantages and disadvantages. Being uncrackable by a quantum computer is just an entrance criterion for this competition. Some of these algorithms are rather new, and it's possible that a classical computer, in the hands of a creative bad actor like our lair-dwelling evil thief, can be used to break the encryption as well. In fact, that's the main security concern for this competition. Besides security, NIST also wants to make sure the new protocol will run quickly on our computers and other devices and won't slow our online transactions down to a crawl. Here's Chen again. So we always consider uh, both the security and uh, performance because as we mentioned, these uh, crypto systems will be used in different applications. So the performance is uh, also very important. To evaluate security, NIST opens up the algorithms to the entire cryptographic community, and everyone tries to come up with attacks to crack the code. And for performance, they look at how quickly the encryption can happen and how much computer memory is used up in the process. After all, we expect our computer transactions to be basically instantaneous. And the community also helped to provide benchmarks for the implementation on the different platforms so we can make some kind of comparison. Each submission was open for comment to anyone in the world. But surely a substantive conversation between esteemed mathematicians can't get too heated, right? Mostly right, although at times, the conversations in those comment threads become oddly reminiscent of YouTube comment sections. For example, here's a short excerpt from one such thread, kindly read by voice actors Giovanni Opizzi and Raimundo Rodriguez. As far as I can tell, the question specific to classic McLeese has already been answered. In the formal sense that you responded, I guess. It's like asking the time and being told that it depends on the observer's frame of reference. 
Thanks, Einstein. It is an answer, but I still don't know if I'm late for class. The NIST evaluators keep it professional, but the discussions are still very contentious. We, uh, we kind of um, argue a lot uh, behind the closed doors, <laughs> for sure, um, because uh, it, you know that's normal to have different opinions about the, the uh, different algorithms and uh, consider which kind of aspect is important, which kind of character is more important than others. Yes, the uh, decision has has never been straightforward. We had like a twice a week meetings, and each of the meeting lasted two hours. Then we could have like hundreds of emails in a matter of twenty four hours on the same topic to talk back and forth. But uh, we are very responsible for this decision to make. We want each of the team members to voice their opinions. And finally, we will have a, a final decision, consider all the input. They say truth springs from arguments. And after much deliberation, on July 5th, 2022, NIST has announced the winners of NIST's heart to become the next cryptography standard. For digital signatures, three winners were selected for standardization. The first was Crystal's Dilithium, a particularly efficient implementation of the lattice problem. The second was Falcon, an algorithm that's also based on the lattice problem, but might have some benefits over Crystal's Dilithium for some applications. And the last was Sphinx, a hash-based scheme that provides an alternative to the lattice problem algorithms. For encryption, NIST announced one winning algorithm, Crystal's Kyber, Crystal Dilithium's encryption-minded twin that's also based on the lattice problem. To avoid relying solely on the lattice problem in the encryption department, NIST is holding an extra fourth round of selection to pick at least one of four algorithms for standardization at a later time. Luckily, this bachelor-like competition is not bound by the rules of monogamy, and the more algorithms are standardized, the more likely we are to be protected in the possible quantum future. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for NIST's announcement of the other winning algorithms in the coming years. A big thanks to Lily Chen for giving us a play-by-play on this unfolding reality show, and to Andrew Childs for filling us in on the quantum side of the story. Also thanks to Yikai Liu, co-director of the Joint Center for Quantum Information and Computer Science and staff scientist at NIST for providing background information. We'll be back soon with another episode. For Relatively Certain, I'm Dina Genkina. I think a lot of the time, the weak point in cybersecurity is not the crypto. It's not like how, how mathematically hard is some problem. It's other more mundane stuff like was something implemented in the right way? Was there a bug in some software? Was someone able to guess someone's password because they used a bad password? You know, I mean, there's like, there's like many things that can go wrong. And yeah, if you want to steal somebody's credit card information, there are much easier ways to do it than building a quantum computer.